Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to bring to you the guest speaker talks from the 2019 East End Conference held in the Astronomer Pub in Middlesex Street in the East End of London on the 5th and 6th of October 2019. The sixth speaker at this year's conference is Sarah Beth Hopton. Dr. Hopton is an assistant professor of professional and technical communication at Appalachian State University. She holds an MA with distinction in creative writing from Lancaster University in the United Kingdom and a PhD from the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. Her book on Mary Piercy, Woman at the Devil's Door, is the first full-length account of the case and her talk about the Hampstead murderess is entitled Love's Executioner, Mary Piercy and Morbid Jealousy. Mary Eleanor Wheeler was born in Ingham, Kent on Monday, March 26, 1866. The weather that day was reportedly breezy and dry, a very nearly perfect country day. Mrs. Taylor, a friend of the family and nurse to Charlotte Ann, Mary's mother, said that baby Mary was pretty, born with light hair and large, round, bright blue eyes. Mary Percy was the oldest of five and grew up in a modest but happy home. Her mother, Charlotte, later recounted that she and her husband never had a misword in their lives. Her parents had met on a ship, and at least for her father, it was love at first sight. Her father, James Wheeler, reportedly told a friend, There goes my wife. Either that girl or nobody for me. They married on Valentine's Day, 1865. James loved his wife and daughter equally well. A friend and village neighbor who knew James described him as tall and thin, with dark hair and a dark complexion, and described Mrs. Wheeler as also tall, a slender woman with very fair hair, the same fair hair with auburn streaks she passed on to her daughter Mary. They were nice, respectable people. James was appointed the village policeman, When he was off duty, he wore a bright blue jersey and played chase with the village children, his own daughter among them. When he was on duty, he was serious, some might even say severe. He nicknamed his daughter Nellie, and within a few years, they traded the pretty districts of Kent for the whirl, wonder, and pay raises to be found in the metropolis. They moved to Mile End, a district in the gritty east end of London. And with a reputation as an honest, strong man and a patriot, James found immediate work at the Wapping Wharf, London's infamous execution dock on the banks of the Thames River. The Wheelers were not well off, but James enjoyed consistent and decently paid work, and they were better off than many of their neighbors. They had a flat to house their growing family, life insurance, and enough discretionary cash or items for trade to afford school for their children, a nursemaid for Nellie, and tobacco and newspapers for James's pleasure in the off hours. When Nellie was nearly two years old, her nurse accidentally dropped her on paving stones in the garden. Nellie hit her head hard, and a few weeks after the incident, the two-year-old started touching the tender spot where she had landed and crying persistently. When she developed language, she later complained of agonizing headaches. Some of these headaches were so burning, she would try virtually anything to put them out. One such try resulted in her wading through the thick marsh grass into the muddy waters of the River Lee, presumably to drown herself. James Wheeler loved all his children, but he was particularly attached to his eldest, Nellie. At seeing her father returning from the wharf, Nellie would run to meet him, 
and he would sweep her up into his arms and they would walk into the house together. Her father's consistent affection surely relieved some of the physical discomfort she experienced. He was the central male figure in her life, the one whom she loved most and best, the sun around which her bright star rotated. But for all the comfort that being swept up into his arms and held against his chest offered her, Nellie's father would not be able to keep his daughter from suffering. No matter how strong the bond between them, their love was weak against the ever-growing list of medical and psychological maladies Nellie endured. As Nellie grew into herself, her relentless headaches became omens, painful antecedents that precipitated both grand and petite mal seizures, episodes of severe depression, and strange antisocial behavior that challenged those around her. Seizures were poorly understood in the late Victorian period, despite the technological and medical advances marshaled in the Age of Wonder. Epilepsy, an example, was still considered a socially constructed affliction, with many Victorians believing that hard work, orderliness, diligence, and temperance were the best medicines against the disease. Those unfortunate enough to suffer full-blown epilepsy, or worse, to experience an epileptic fit in front of their employers, were often dismissed from service and carted out of society's view. They were stigmatized at best and confined to lunatic asylums, prisons, epileptic colonies, workhouses, and other despairing places where the natural could hide from the unnatural at worst. Despite her symptoms and maladies, Nellie went to school. Of average intelligence, by the time she was 14, she could read poetry, favoring Longfellow, write paragraphs, and perform basic mathematics. She liked to read, which might have been what attracted her to her first job working for her uncle as a newsagent. The hours of the newsagent were long and difficult, subjected as she was to the fickle London weather. She later quit her uncle's shop when she landed another job with the Prumers to mine their newborn son, Christoph, a job she relished and was quite proud to hold. The Prumers liked having Nellie, too. She was good with their baby boy, good with children generally, and was described as a great favorite among the household. But she had a grand mal seizure in July of 1882, and the Prumers immediately dismissed her. In August of 1882, just a month after losing her job, when she was still only 16, a group of men came to the Wheeler house carrying Nellie's beloved father in on a gurney. Either he had fallen on something or something large had fallen on him, but James suffered a double rupture. His internal wounds were severe, and he writhed in pain over two days as Nellie watched helplessly, and then he died. His death was a terrible blow to the family, launching the family into an uncertain economic and social future. But James's death was especially hard on Nellie, a misfortune, a trauma, from which she never quite recovered. Both Charlotte and Nellie took on what work was afforded them, needlework, hat-making, child-minding, laundry, but it was never quite enough, and the family drifted further and further into the hinterlands of poverty conceding more of their personal safety and independence with every strange lodger they took in, or every dim house they entered to clean. Nellie's mother, Charlotte, could barely manage her grief, and at times could not manage it at all. She spent four months just after her husband's death in the sick asylum, leaving her eldest daughter to manage the household affairs alone. Later, when Charlotte returned home, she and a neighbor thwarted Nellie's second attempted suicide. When they walked into the garden to find her black in the face, a noose around her neck, and a laundry basket kicked from underneath her. When they saw her, they rushed to cut her down. Nellie felt increasingly tormented. 
Her father's unexpected death, her mother's depression and abandonment, the weight of responsibility for minding younger brothers and sisters, and suffering any number of underlying mental illnesses shrank her world until it was cold and dark and very, very small. So it should be no surprise, then, that when a fit railroad shunter and his mother, by the last name of West, moved into the Wheeler's squalid little flat, and the young son took first to casual flirting and then overt desire, Mary forgot about her troubles for a minute. She took to him like a robber fly to a beetle. His attention and affection warmed, illuminated, and enlarged her life. She met him secretly at first, and then publicly, naming him in a Stepney Union workhouse report as her fiancé. And when the chance to run away with him came, Mary took it, launching herself into a world never so safe or kind as that which she eagerly and unceremoniously left. Our early relationships and their fractures are not destiny, but they are theorized to establish deeply ingrained patterns of relating to others, how we love, and how, in the worst of conditions, we treat those that we love. Dramatic stories of deadly jealousy like Mary Percy's feed a general sense that jealous feelings are abhorrent, a product of a warped character or an unhinged mind, but jealousy serves its purpose. Like many other emotions, jealousy is sometimes born of necessity. Humans experience jealousy because it helps the species survive. It is a response to the frustrations and negotiations necessary for life in relation to others. Jealousy is often defined negatively as an emotional state generated in response to a threatened or actual loss of a valued relationship due to the presence of a real or imagined rival. And while jealousy is often classified as mere, as in he was merely jealous of her success, and to be fair, most jealousy is mere, it can be anything but. Jealousy is a complex social emotion a blend of emotions that contains independently calculated ratios of rage, anger, fear of abandonment, and the associated pain of deep insecurity, chronic mistrust, humiliation, and grief. It is painful for the jealous, resulting in somatic cognitive and behavioral experiences, and equally painful, sometimes deadly, for the object of one's jealousy. Culture and historical context can also influence the experience of jealousy and the rules around displaying jealous behavior. The idea of honor killings in Afghanistan comes to mind, but more connected to this case is the idea of and punishments meted out for crimes of passion. While the crime passional is standard legal defense in France, it is much less common in England and begrudgingly applied in the United States. The discrepancy in prevalence or application of such law is due as much to cultural attitudes around heteronormative sex and gender roles as it is to biology or psychology. But why does jealousy exist at all? And how do we know when it goes necrotic, turns pathological? Evolutionary biology can help answer the first question. For the small and growing child, jealousy functions as a means of attracting and maintaining the attention of loved adults, which is good for the child's chances of survival. Also, and somewhat more surprisingly, jealousy seems to play a beneficial role in social adaptation and education. It encourages the increasingly differentiated child to build and recognize the strength of certain relationships, to integrate valued features of caregivers, and to take a position as an individuated self. As adults, jealousy manifests as a powerful deterrent to potential and real threats of infidelity. As evolutionary psychologist David Buss explains, jealousy warns of the possible danger to a sexual relationship that could, 
or should, as the genes would have it, lead to a successful genetic replication in the form of children. That's not to say a jealous rage designed to rein in a philandering partner is good for the individual who is raging, or the partner who suffers the rage, but evolution cares not about how the jealous feel, only about the genetic outcome of that rage. It may be oversimplified to say this, but jealousy serves the species. It helps us get or get rid of what we want and need or don't need. Let's look at how jealousy worked in the case of Mary Percy. One might rightfully argue that Mary had no real claim on Frank Hogg, and no reason to expect her affection would be reciprocated. She was, after all, merely his mistress. But remember that Mary and Frank had developed a profound emotional intimacy, strong enough that when Frank, distraught and suicidal at learning his casual dalliance with Phoebe had resulted in pregnancy, went to Mary for consolation and advice. And remember, too, that it was Mary that went to some lengths in order to convince Frank to marry Phoebe, legitimize the baby, who would have otherwise endured a lifetime of hardship as a bastard. You would not be alone in asking, why? What would the jealous lover gain by entering this seemingly selfless pact? Mary was shrewd in some ways, and naive in others, about how to manipulate jealous feelings to her advantage. Phoebe's pregnancy trumped Mary's power as Frank's longer-time lover. But Mary shrewdly calculated that so long as Frank disliked Phoebe and felt contemptuous of her entrapment into the miseries of marriage and fatherhood, Mary had enough currency to keep Frank close. Mary accepted the only position left to her, that of mistress, and leveraged shrewdly, calculating that hers was not a position without its power. As his mistress in example, she could provide Frank the kind of sex he wanted when he wanted it, a body and mind unburdened by the demands and depressions of a suckling newborn, and a travel companion for his otherwise dull work trips to and from the city, moving retired rich widows to the countryside. As F. Tennyson Jess put it, Mary was an adventure, while Phoebe was the penalty for carelessness, and few want to end grand adventures. But Mary was naive about the power of genetics. Despite Mary's countless machinations to put Frank in her path, or to highlight Phoebe's inferiority as a wife and mother, Frank eventually softened to his wife and attached to his daughter. Frank and Phoebe's marriage, which had been rife with conflict over power and resentment, displaced as fights over letters, eventually found its resting temperature. Their marriage became tolerable, even if it was never quite happy. To win Phoebe back after an extended separation, as example, Frank even conceded to leaving Prince of Wales Road, which was, in effect, to agree to leave Mary. This loss of power and Frank's waning attention were the triggers around which common jealousy morphed into pathological jealousy. Had Mary successfully returned her errant lover to his senses, had she become a mother first, had Phoebe not owned her power as Frank's legitimate wife and mother of his child, had the affair continued, it's likely that Mary Percy could have arose to the poet Sappho's challenge that, in jealous love, all must be endured. But of course that isn't what happened. Mary didn't endure the sublime jealous flash. She wasn't capable of transmuting that flash to reverence rather than violence. Instead, she succumbed to Iago's manipulations and lies, and chose to be the monster rather than the meat. But could it have ended differently? Would another lover have acted so brutally? How much of Mary's early life and genetic disposition predetermined her deadly choices? Would Frank have murdered Phoebe's lover had she taken one? 
We must be wary of essentializing when we think and talk about the differences or similarities in how the genders process emotions, but there seems to be some scientific consensus that women and men do indeed process jealousy differently. They also tend to act on their jealousy in rather different ways. Though the evidence is mixed, some research shows a tendency for women to be more jealous of emotional rather than sexual infidelities. A rival female who has captured a man's heart is a menace to the woman's very existence, for she threatens diversion of resources, protection, or social standing connection to a male partner typically provides. Women tend to manipulate their partner's jealous feelings by flirting to keep their men enticed or at bay, whereas men tend to convince their partners to remain faithful through force. To grossly oversimplify, men's experience of jealousy is often more visceral and women's more cerebral. Mary was correct in her original calculus of power. She would remain in control of the triad so long as Frank turned to her for advice and affirmation and remained emotionally disconnected from his wife and ambivalent about his child. But as Frank connected with Phoebe and doted on Tiggy, Mary became increasingly and rightfully anxious. When morbid jealousy turns violent, it is almost always the lover who is the victim. In the case of a jealous husband, an example, the wife's lover, or more commonly the wife, is the victim of domestic abuse, and in too many cases, murder. Rarely does the jealous lover take out her jealous feelings on the legitimate wife, and rarer still, on the couple's child. Which is another reason why Mary's decision to murder Phoebe and Tiggy Hogg is quite extraordinary. Neither enculturation nor biology was enough to persuade Mary along a different path. Which raises the question, was something else at work on and in her? Morbid jealousy is associated with other underlying mental illnesses like depression, substance abuse, and obsessive-compulsive disorder. It is not uncommon for the morbidly jealous to attempt suicide or to dream of killing themselves. An aggressive fight may be followed by intense remorse and shame, during which suicidal action or ideation may occur. Let us remember those awful scenes between Mary and her common-law husband, John Charles Percy, wherein a wicked fight would break out between them over some or another reason, and, devastated by criticism, Mary would grab a bottle of poison and impulsively pour it down her throat. John, afraid she might succeed in her suicide attempt, would then force cup after cup of salted water into her stomach until she vomited. Exhausted, Mary often fell asleep, only to wake up with a headache and no recollection whatever of the fight or her attempted suicide. By one researcher's numbers, up to 20% of the morbidly jealous studied had attempted suicide. Shakespeare's Othello is no exception to this rule. Once Iago had given Othello proof of Desdemona's presumed infidelity with Cassio, Othello falls into an epilepsy, a fit, complete with a jealous flash, wherein Othello strangles his wife, then the exposed Iago, and then kills himself. If Othello is any guide to the experience of morbid jealousy, then it can rightfully be described as a blend of anger, anxiety, and like the pierce of Cupid's bow, uncontrollable. The sensation of feeling jealous may be uncontrollable, but it is not all that uncommon, nor is it a terribly uncommon motive for murder. In fact, according to Gerhard Falk, retired criminologist and sociologist, jealousy is the fourth most common motive for murder, implicated in nearly 11% of all recorded homicides. So if jealousy is a commonly occurring feature of the human experience, and morbid jealousy, so known among our species as a motivating emotion, that Shakespeare saw fit to write about it, are you or I susceptible to it? And why are some, as was Sappho, able to endure all when jealousy took root inside them?
while others capitulate to the green-eyed monster. According to modern science, pathological jealousy can result from a brain injury, not unlike the kind that might result when a two-year-old girl falls headfirst onto a garden's paving stone. It can also occur from other kinds of brain deterioration, as that common among chemical and alcohol abusers. Was it a brain injury, then, that facilitated Othello's jealousy from normal to morbid? Perhaps. He was a soldier, and Shakespeare tells us that he falls into a trance and into an epilepsy this his second fit, descriptions of which are eerily similar to the ways John Charles, Charles Crichton, and Frank Hogg described instances where Mary fell into similar states. Modern psychology also tells us that pathological jealousy arises concurrent to or following other mental disorders and disease. It almost always coexists with other dominant psychopathologies, like obsessive-compulsive disorder or manic depression. Both OCD and manic depression are heritable, and we know that Mary's mother, Charlotte Ann, was a sickly woman who suffered chronic bouts of depressive behavior. Both Mary and her mother, Charlotte, received treatment for their maladies, and Mary, on at least two occasions, received medicine meant to treat her spells or seizures. It's impossible to know whether her seizures were a result of epilepsy or caused by some underlying affective disorder or brain trauma, but the episodes were serious. Serious enough that during one seizure, she drove a hairpin into her head. Regrettably, we cannot pinpoint the transition from normal to pathological jealousy in Mary Percy. We cannot even determine if she suffered morbid jealousy for sure. What we do know is that morbid jealousy is no unitary syndrome but occurs as a component of different psychiatric disorders. It is often triggered by stimuli the sufferer perceives as indications of the love object's possible unfaithfulness or lack of interest or neglect. We certainly see Mary's escalating anxiety over the possibility of losing Frank to Phoebe in the weeks leading up to the murder. In example, Frank and Phoebe's tentative reconciliation leads Frank to visit Mary less and less, and his absence from her life troubles Mary so deeply she talks to her friends and neighbors about it. She writes him letters begging him to stop by, even if just for a few minutes. She meanders in the garden, morose and forlorn. Even the night of the murder, Frank is short with her in his letter, scribbling on a piece of paper that he cannot stay longer. His withdrawal of attention and affection exaggerates Mary's poor self-esteem, and Frank's slow but steady emotional connection to his wife challenges he and Mary's emotional exclusivity, threatening the atomic core of their relationship and the very seat of Mary's power. Processing all these stimuli for Mary was surely complicated by organic variables, her mortal fear of abandonment due to the sudden loss of her father and the family's descent into the Victorian underworld, complete with long stays in workhouses and cruel social and medical limitations to work and mental and physical help. It is difficult to enter her subject position sometimes. After all, she bludgeoned another woman to death and then nearly cut her head clean off, before likely suffocating the woman's child. But the weight of these obsessive thoughts, the real traumas, and her real psychological maladies made the anticipated loss of Frank Hogg's love subjectively unbearable, and in her fatigued and fractured state of mind, the unthinkable became not only reasonable, but necessary. Like literary role models of her era, Mary became an extreme version of Emma Woodhouse and took action to get and keep the one she wanted. Though it may be difficult to imagine brutalizing another human being as Mary did, as we've already established, the violently jealous impulse is not uncommon among humans. Curses were a favored means of exercising the jealously violent impulse, 
For the ancient Greek and Roman mind, erotic love was understood to attack its human victims physically, to make them ill, and in some cases, to even kill them. It is a risk we human animals are willing to take to find and feel loved. Obsessive love, of course, is not love at all. It is about control and possession of the love object. Even so, as we review and conclude the case of Mary Percy, knowing what we know now about her life, the trauma she experienced in it, and the brutal dictates of the obsessed mind, do we not find some space to see her as a more fully realized and fatally human human being? And isn't that the point in reconstructing these crimes and peering into the mind of our fellow human, however ghastly and unthinkable the scene we see inside is? At the end of her chapter on Mary Percy, F. Tennyson Jess writes this, There is something epic about the extraordinary journey of this extraordinary woman, something that lifts her above the sordidness of her crime. The descriptions of the witnesses show one vivid little picture of her bent over the white china handlebar, which was found stained and broken. So intent she recognized nobody whom she met, going on, always on. Have we all not been victim to the impulse of love? Are we all not at some point in our lives the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on? It is important to come together from time to time to study these cases in the way it is important to study canonical literature. Delving into the mind of a killer, especially when that killer's behavior is exceptional, helps give the mind a face and the life it symbolizes value. We must not dishonor the dead by forgetting that Mary Percy committed a revolting, outrageous, thunderous violence. But it is a violence of which we are all capable of, given the right conditions. Violence has been necessary to our survival, and in this way violence, even extreme violence, is fascinating, but not at all unusual. So as we lay Mrs. Piercy to rest again in her unmarked, deep, and cold grave under the heavy flagstones of Newgate Prison, perhaps we might offer her thanks for her time with us tonight. And that thanks need be nothing more than the recognition that love can serve as the wellspring of generosity and inhumanity, that we may escape the circumstances, but never the capacity to be the murdered or the murderer. For we are all, as Iago foretold, equal parts monster, and meat. And that was Sarah Beth Hopton at the 2019 East End Conference. We would like to thank Dr. Hopton, Adam Wood, Mark Ripper, Andrew Firth, and Carl Kopak for making this and all of the talks from this year's conference available for our listeners. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by casebook.org, where you will find over 170 roundtable discussions, author interviews, conference presentations and archive recordings all about the Whitechapel murders and East End crime and history. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcast releases, feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast.